And now, it's time once again for the show that gives glorious voice to 25 million business owners across the fruited plain. Radio Free Enterprise with Frank Felker. Thank you, Dude Walker. Yes, indeed, I am Frank Felker. Welcome back to Radio Free Enterprise. My guest today is Tony Mayo. Tony's a best-selling author, keynote speaker, and the executive coach to business owners. Tony Mayo, welcome to the program. Thanks, Frank. I appreciate being here. Tony helps business owners in a wide variety of industries create larger, more lucrative businesses in less time with less stress. And a big part of doing that is how he helps them gather together excellent teams of employees that can take care of the mundane stuff so the business owner can focus on the important things like strategy or even things outside of their business. So what Tony and I want to talk about today is just that, managing, how to become a better boss, how to become somebody that somebody else would like to work for. And we've got a lot of ground to cover, Tony, but I want to start with this. What would you say is the biggest mistake that you've seen business owners make over the years relative to hiring and managing people? Well, I would say it's uh, two sides of the same coin. Uh, either they want employees to be just like them, but they're not business owners, they're employees. I mean, would you want a job with you? Or on the, <laughs> other, hand, <laughs> or on the other hand, they expect them to be like machines. Give them a clear instruction, they just run it perfectly every time. And, and that's just not human, that's not what you're going to get. So you've got to treat people like adult human beings. That's the key. Now, when you say that uh, you shouldn't expect employees to act like entrepreneurs or business owners, could you be a little more clear about what exactly does that mean? What is it that, about them that's different? Well, a form of this is why don't they take more initiative? How come they're not taking responsibility? Why aren't they going the extra distance, bringing me ideas and that sort of thing? Mm -hmm. uh, but that's not what you generally want from your employees all the time. You want them to understand their particular field and execute on it in a reliable way. Uh, it's up to you to develop the strategy. In fact, if employees came to you with lots of new ideas and changes and innovations, it would wear you out. You, you don't want that from everyone. <laughs> I can see that. Everybody's coming from um, every direction to... Hey, boss, I got a great idea. What do you think about this? And uh, yeah, the yeah. expression you used, would it would wear you down after a while if you get too much of that. Yeah, and another form of that is people continually coming to you uh, to get permission or to keep you in the loop. Right. Uh, but often what they're looking for is advanced absolution. If they come okay. to you... What, and you what do you mean by that? <laughs> if they come to you in advance and tell you what they're going to do and you approve it, it, you're on the hook for how it goes. I see. They're just trying to get uh, you to take full responsibility on the repercussions. But that's not the kind of people you want around. You want people who will stand up to their own ideas and deal with the consequences. Interesting. So that's sort of a, that advanced uh, or advanced absolutions, kind of like yeah. uh, asking for forgiveness at the end instead of asking for permission at the beginning. The other way around, <laughs> yeah. advanced uh, exactly. absolution is asking for permission. Yeah. Now, you also said that they're not robots, where you give them an instruction set and you expect them to do it over and over again. Can you tell me more about what you mean by that and what goes wrong if I do expect that? Mm -hmm. Well, 
I was I had a good fortune uh, at one point when I was well into management of doing some volunteer work. So I showed up for my allotted time, and the employee at the institution said, "Okay, here's what I'd like you to do." And it was something straightforward: take this clipboard. For anyone on here that has a mark in this column, look up this and write it on this other one. It was maybe 10 steps. And he ran through this once. I walked back to my desk and realized I had no idea what to do. Because the whole time I was in the boss's office, I was thinking about looking attentive, being eager, polite. I didn't hear the instruction. And I realized mm -hmm. how often I do that to people too. I just run through it, lickety-split. Uh, as though I were writing code in a machine and expect them to get it. No. Uh, if they're not asking questions, slowing things down, building some relationship to find out whether it's a good time to give an instruction, it's just not going to work. But most people won't do what I did that day, which is to take that long, humiliating walk from my desk back to his desk and say, you know what, I don't know what to do. Please run through that again. So just make it up. Go wing it. Because that's right. easier than getting attention again. Interesting. So uh, what would you recommend to your clients as the business owner or manager that they could do to uh, help mitigate that? Well, there's a technique that I learned as a pilot. And you've probably all heard this in movies, even if you've never been in the cockpit. And it's called the readback report back. So when air traffic control uh, gives an instruction to a pilot to go to a different flight level, a different attitude, uh, al altitude, uh, they'll say, okay, United 354, cleared to heading 170 at flight level 34. And the pilot says, this is United 347, proceeding to heading 170 at flight level 34. And then when he gets there, he says, United 347 is at flight level 34 on a heading of 170. So he got the instruction, he read it back, and then he reported when it was done. Those three steps improve the quality of work immensely. When I started doing this with my employees, one of the best benefits was one I wasn't too proud of. When the employee read back the instruction, I often realized it was not that good an instruction. And I get a chance to modify before they went off and did the wrong thing or did it halfway. But also, that report back is so wonderful. To this day, my favorite email from my virtual assistant is four letters, D-O-N-E. So I know that that task, which I delegated, is now complete. Because there's some part of my brain that's thinking about, is that done? How did it go? Just getting that done email goes a long way. So you're saying that you actually have the employee repeat back to you verbatim or as closely as they can what you just told them. Now, does that, uh, is that a little bit awkward? Does the employee find that demeaning if the first time they're doing it? Or how does that go over? How do you sort of uh, sugarcoat that? That's a good point, Frank. Thanks. I'm, I'm so accustomed to this that I've forgotten about the, the sort of padding you need to put around this kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And it's my favorite one. Uh, which is I take responsibility for being less than perfect. Saying, now, I'd appreciate it if you just repeated back to me what you're going to go do, because <laughs> I'm not sure I gave you a really good instruction. I want to hear what I said to make sure that I conveyed it well. That's great. 
Yeah, I use that with uh, with contracts and written follow-up. You know, sometimes people say, oh, we don't need to, to formalize this in a contract. And my response is, I'm sure that your integrity is as good as mine, but I don't think your memory is any better than mine. Let's write it down. That's great. I like that very much. Now, do you have advice that you give to your coaching clients relative to recruiting and people as far as how they advertise and how they interview and that type of thing? I do. We talk about that quite a bit. Uh, there are a number of aspects to it, but first I'll tell you, if, I, if you don't mind, I'll give you a little anecdote. I have coaching groups where I get business owners together and they will meet on a regular basis. They get to know each other and they help each other with their business challenges. The first time I was setting one of these up, I got a great opportunity with a large regional accounting firm. We met in their office, had my prospects, their clients. And one of the first topics to come up was recruiting, hiring, and retention. It's great, very important stuff. Mm -hmm. We talked about it for about an hour, which is the typical length for these group conversations. Halfway into this, I'm noticing nobody's jumping up and saying, that's brilliant, you've solved my problem. <laughs> Nothing new, no breakthroughs. I'm sweat. I'm saying, I want to charge these people to come to this meeting. They better get something. Sure. Conversation concluded without any significant breakthrough advice. When the meeting was over, more than one of the people came up to me and said, I want to join. And of course, being a salesperson, I said, well, tell me what it is that made your decision. He said, well, it was that conversation about hiring and retention. Hmm. What I found out is everybody has trouble with it and nobody is doing anything better than what I'm doing. So I can relax. I can stop looking for the magic bullet on that one. It's just hard. Hmm. Now, they were doing the best practices in that room. There are some things that can make a difference if you're not already doing them. The most popular one these days is what's sometimes called the behavioral interview. If you need someone to be able to do a particular task, you need someone who can work with pivot tables in Excel and put out beautiful reports in PowerPoint. Well, you ask them about times they've done that, not can you do this, that's a yes or no. No, I want to hear about a particular set pivot table that you're proud of. Tell me about another one and another one. You want to ask for two or three specific examples. It's just too easy to say that you know how to do something without getting into the details. Mm -hmm. So that's the behavioral too. Find out from them specifics about the time they exhibited the behavior that you want. Classic questions are things like, Tell me about a particularly difficult customer complaint that you resolved amiably. You know, whatever it is, the skill you need for that job. What about ideas that you may share with your clients about retaining people for the longer term? Mm -hmm. um, particularly, well, especially people who are good. You know, of course, right. we, uh, we're hopeful that either the, uh, the people who aren't so good are going to find their way, own way out the door or we're going to have to give them a nudge. But how about retention? You know, these days, because unemployment is so high and everything that's going on with the COVID and everything else, I'm sure people who find a job are more likely to stick with it. But we're not going to be in this situation forever. And just 12 months ago, we were at record low unemployment. What sort of right. things can business owners do to help retain quality people? Right. And the best people are the hardest to retain, aren't they? Sure. Well, let's uh, deal with both parts of that issue with one good practice, and that is the retention as well as moving out the lower performers. Great. Mm -hmm. And that 
it has to have a culture of accountability. Now, you got to be careful about this. I have found that when I'm doing a, a corporate strategy retreat or an executive committee meeting, someone will often say, we need more accountability in this organization. But what they really mean is we need more punishment. <laughs> that's, not, that's not what I mean by accountability. Uh, what I mean is like an accountant has accountability. If you ask your accountant or your controller the amount of cash you have on hand, uh, whether you can cover a payroll next week, they're going to give you the answer. Now, it's not their job for you to have enough money. They're mm. just giving you an accounting of it. And that's what I want for every job uh, in your organization, for them to be able to tell you exactly where it stands all the time. And if that's different from what you've instructed them to do, what the business requires, what they've agreed to do, don't push it under the rug. Make it clear that this is what was needed. That is what we got. What are you going to do about that? The people who are good love this because they know they are meeting the standard. The people mm -hmm. who are no good very quickly leave. I can't tell you how many brothers-in-law, long-term employees, folks who just retired in place, the RIP employees who are just hiding out because they've been there for 25 years and nobody wants to fire them. Mm -hmm. If you start telling those people every day or two, this is what you said you would do. I didn't get it. Now what? They leave. Nobody wants to be reminded to not hitting the mark time after time. They don't want to keep having that conversation with you. Right. Right. I'm not punishing them. I'm not demeaning them. I'm saying this was the promise. Here's the reality. Now what? The good you know, people say, I'll fix it. And the bad ones say, sayonara. <laughs> you brought something up there that uh, is really a very ticklish point, which has to do with family businesses. You mentioned the brother-in-law. But it's not always in-laws. It can be, you know, brothers, sisters, daughters, sons, etc. Yeah. What about the particular dynamics of uh, an outsider working within a family business? Have you ever had to counsel one of your clients to say, hey, you know, uh, this guy is only one of three people who's not a family member in this company and you need to do something. I don't know what, treat them differently or or do something. Have you ever come across a situation like that where family dynamics play into management? Oh, yeah, definitely. And that's one of the things where it's actually an easier part of my job because I'm often the only one that can tell the truth about this. <laughs> they expect me to be an outsider who's not concerned about the family dynamics. Well, I'm concerned, but I'm not constrained by them. Yeah. Mm -hmm. so, you know, I, I can have some very frank conversations about that with the family members as well as with the, the boss. I mean, I, I've had significant shareholders uh, pushed out. Uh, and, and it didn't cause any long-term rancor because, again, we're dealing with this is what's needed. Here's what's going on. What do we do? You know, I have a long-standing sort of pat statement that I say that business relationships have to be different than personal relationships because as, you know, well, that guy means business or that lady is serious business. And it just comes down to you have to do and say things in business in order to stay alive in business that you might be able to dodge in personal relationships. Is this a, an a topic that you address? I know you just spoke of it a moment ago that, you know, this Uncle Joe's got to go even though he owns, you know, 30% of the company because he's just not getting it done. 
But is that anything you ever have to counsel people about is, look, this is something that has to be said that you wouldn't say at the Thanksgiving table, but you got to say at the board table. Absolutely. And role playing those conversations is maybe the largest single use of time when I'm coaching a client one to one. In fact, it's one of the things that sold me on video conferencing instead of just telephone coaching. Mm -hmm. uh, years ago, I was on a Skype or maybe a predecessor with a client. She had a difficult conversation, in her case, with a superior, and we role-played it. She said exactly what we had designed together, and as soon as she finished the role-play, I saw this. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I guess you're not really sold on this approach. Let's work on it some more. So video definitely adds a wider communication channel. Uh, but what it comes down to in these conversations, I operate, one of my operating principles in life, as well as, as a coach, is there's a way to say anything to anybody in a way that works for everybody. Hmm. Now that's a tall order. I'd but think say. about it. What, think about how would your life be if you really could express anything to anybody in a way that works for everybody? You would get so much off your chest. You'd be so much clearer about what they have to say, what matters to them. Believe me, it makes life a lot smoother, more fun, more productive. The question is, how do you do it? Yeah. Well, there are a lot of there are a lot of particulars and circumstances, but it comes down to this: it's an adult to adult conversation. Now, that may seem like a meaningless phrase, but it's based on. A book you've probably heard of if you're if you're old enough is called "I'm Okay, You're Okay." Oh, That's the first really solid self-help psychology books written by a breakthrough psychologist. And the idea he points out in this is that the, when we communicate with each other, we're often vying for position, uh, for priority, for strength. Uh, one way to introduce the idea is to think about. The first word humans understand, now not the first one they can say, but the first word when the parent usually says it to the child, they get it. No. You, you wanna get Frank? It's no. Mm -hmm. We teach them no, because we wanna protect them, right? We need to protect them from certain things. In fact, uh, one of my children, I won't say which of the three, <laughs> while I was changing a diaper, stood up on the changing table and started to urinate. I said, no! And he stopped. Like, wow. Not only did he know the word, he can control things. <laughs> <laughs> but what does this do to us as humans? The first thing we learn in language, which is where we live most of our lives, is there's something wrong. It's me. And the person who knows what's wrong is the most important person in the world. A good relationship with the parent is life and death at that age. Sure. Mm -hmm. And that insight of what it means to be human is deep on, as a foundation element of all of us almost all the time. Something's wrong. It's me. Hmm. And the person who points out that it's wrong is really important. Interesting. So what happens? It's so easy as a boss to reenact that parent-child interaction. When we criticize employees, tell them what they're doing wrong, tell them where to sit, when to stand, when they can eat lunch, right. we're being parental. And that can put them into a child mode 
where they're irresponsible, uh, they're emotional, they're, they're resistant. You know, kids know the parents have power, but they know how to get around it, right? Sure. <laughs> we remember being teenagers. Mm -hmm. The thing is, when you start this critical uh, parental behavior, you downgrade employees into childlike behavior. What's the way out? Adult to adult. Treat your employees like people who have skills, they have integrity, they can listen, they can talk, they can be creative. And you're, at that eye-level conversation, a lot of work can get done in a compressed amount of time. That's great so the, advice. The litmus test is, if you're telling someone what's wrong with them, you're on the wrong path. Now, sometimes people turn to work that isn't good or they do things that isn't acceptable. That's where my another uh, sort of uh, aphoristic motto comes in. Tough on the task, easy on the people. Not you did this wrong. This report seems to have an error in it. Let's take a look. That's great. I like that. And I also like your reference to the parent-child because I think sometimes by default, managers, people thrust into management, business owners thrust into management who have no training and no successful experience and no role models to follow. The only role model they do have to follow is that parent-child relationship. And they seem to fall into that and they start yelling and threatening and doing all kinds of terrible things. And I'm glad that you brought that up because uh, for me, I was very young when I first started managing people in my family's business. And I was just awful at it. And as I make no bones about that, it was terrible. And, uh, but I've learned over the years to be better. And, I, and not until you just said that, that I realized that even though I was barely 20 myself, I was trying to assume the role of the patriarch and telling people where they're going wrong and what they're going to do next and all that kind of thing. So that's good advice. I, I don't want to yeah. go any farther down that rabbit hole, though, I'm afraid, because we're, we're really eating up the time. And there are a couple of other things I want to talk about. I want to ask you about this whole idea of accountability in a group setting. When you and I first met, it was 20-some-odd uh, years ago. It was the late 90s, somewhere right around the year 2000, 2001, when we were members of a group uh, that was called uh, the Executive Committee, TEC, T-E-C. It's now called, is it pronounced Vistage or Vistage? Yes. <laughs> In this country, it's Vistage. Okay. Um, and so we were a group of about 10 or 12 CEOs, who I used to refer to it as group therapy for, for CEOs. Uh, who would get together once a month, and then we would meet with the chair of our group, the leader of the group, individually once a month. And there was a lot of value to that, and I, I want to let you speak to it, but first got to give you a, a little uh, pat on the back for some accountability you laid on me uh, in one of our meetings that I'll never forget. I had just come back from making an investor presentation to a guy who was managing $125 million worth of funds, and uh, I was asking him for $5 million. And he said, $5 million, that's nothing. He says, how about if I give you $15 million? Can you take this concept nationwide in the next 180 days with $15 million? And I said, certainly not. And uh, he goes, well, I guess we had nothing left to talk about then. He showed me the door. And when you heard me tell that story, you said, well, I think you're playing in the wrong sandbox. Because <laughs> the guy who would have been in the right guy in that sandbox would have said, dang right, I can do it. Where would sign the check, boy? I'm ready to go. And, uh, you know, and then we'll see what happens later. I, the way I put it is it's like, um, uh, you know, trying to sneak a kiss in on a girl 
you know, when you're a teenager, just tell her anything, you know, just get the kiss. I could have told that guy anything and gotten the check, but I just didn't want to. So Don't I, tell me that's my advice. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, that's exactly what Tony told me. <laughs> but anyway, I never forgot that, obviously, because it was 20 years ago. So you you do this type of thing, group uh, meetings and, and this kind of thing. Speak to the services that you offer to business owners and what sort of value they might get from it. Well, you summed it up very nicely with that uh, credo that you gave at the beginning. It's all about having them run a larger and more lucrative business, but with less stress, taking less time. In fact, the way they do it is, I like to say, by becoming better to work for and easier to live with. Some mm -hmm. of the best uh, thank yous I get are from the spouses who find that <laughs> life is uh, easier to get along with. They're less parental at home. How about that? Yeah. Uh, and more collaborative and more available. That's the biggest thing is they just have more time because you know what? And I can't take credit for this. It was one of the speakers we heard when we were together in, in that tech group who, who said, one of the reasons business owners are so busy is a lot of what they do is just creating more for them to do. Hmm. It, it doesn't really matter for the business. Uh, so distinguishing those things uh, goes, goes a long way. So I always tell people I'm working with the whole person. When you're an entrepreneur, your life is one thing. It's not like you can do one thing at the office and something else at home. And they find that uh, once they get the business running better, their personal lives uh, run better and they have more time for them. You know, one of the big benefits I got from it, Tony, and I'm sure your clients do as well, is I needed somebody to talk to about this. Uh, I couldn't talk to my wife about it. Who, who am I going to talk to about it? Nobody wants to hear it. Uh, and nobody really understands what the person at the top of that pyramid goes through. And they don't want to hear it. Certainly your employees don't want to hear about it. And your shareholders don't want to hear about it. And so just having the opportunity to, to vent and get things off your chest uh, and then get some wise feedback and so forth is a, is a huge help. I'm sure you would agree. Uh, absolutely. And I hear it all the time. I, maybe the most common thing I hear from clients is, I'm sorry, I just have to vent to somebody. I said, yeah, that, that's part of the deal. Mm -hmm. Cut loose, say it the way you, you say it to yourself. Don't, no editing. Uh, but the other thing is that here, I guess I've heard it from every client at least once, which is I've never told anyone this, but <laughs> you can see their shoulders go up and they can breathe more deeply to get that secret off of them that they were embarrassed about or didn't know how to handle or weren't, weren't sure how to roll out. Uh, just be able to have another person whom you respect hear this thing that concerns you and they still respect you. That's a big part of what I do as well. And as you said, give them some feedback, which is usually not what to do or an answer. Sometimes I have an answer. I mean, I've been in business for 40 some years, but more often it's helping them understand their, well, here's the, my favorite uh, uh, endorsement I got from a client. She said, with Tony, I do my own best thinking. That's nice. what I'm going for. I like that. And this experience I'm sure you've had, Frank, in, in, uh, with coaching and in the group we're in. By the time you clearly state your concern to the group, you often know what to do. It's something mm -hmm. like getting it out of your head, out on the table, step by step. It's obvious what to do, whereas in here, not so much. You know, one of the things I say is, I keep thinking I can solve these things in my head, but, you know, there's not enough room in there and it's way too dark. 
and it's messy. It's disorganized in there. Oh yeah, there's some there's some scary stuff in there. Yeah. So yeah, getting it out with a with a coach, a patient person with some experience whom you respect, it's a powerful thing. I, I want to wrap up with this, Tony. Um, a lot of people, you know, our age, uh, have been running their business for decades, and now whether they like it or not, the time is coming when they really need to start thinking about what they're going to do next. And I've done a number of, of interviews with people about this, about business owners avoiding even thinking about selling their business or retirement or what have you, because their identity is so tied to that business and to being the owner of the business and the manager of that business. What sort of advice do you offer to your clients in terms of trying to put a wedge between their personal identity and their business identity? Oh, that's not where I thought you were going with that. I thought we're preparing for sale, but I'll go with the way you ended up. Uh, the answer I give is, is, is don't try. Be one person everywhere. You know, when people talk to me about, mm. uh, about work-life balance, I picture one of these old-fashioned balance scales with the scales on each side. Mm -hmm. People are putting their kids and their family and their church and volunteers on this side and the money and the fame and so on, on the other side. But that's not the way you are. You're one thing. You can't split it up and balance it out. So get clear about who you are, what your values are, and then express them in a ways that are appropriate to your different environments. It's an integrated full person approach. Hmm. And it's not always obvious how to do that, but when we dig into it for a while, people start to realize that uh, they can be the same person with the same techniques at home, at the office, in their other interests. That's a very interesting perspective. Well, Tony, we, don't, we don't want to balance it. We want to integrate it. Got it. I see it. That's an excellent illustration that sticks in the mind. Um, if somebody's been watching or listening to our conversation today and wanted to reach out to you and find out more about what you might be able to do for them, what's the best way for them to connect? Well, I would suggest they start at my website. It's TonyMayo.com, T-O-N-Y. You got it up there, mayo.com. Uh, there's a contact form on there, uh, as well as a lot of material. I have 500 articles, uh, some Excel templates and other tools that you can use. So uh, I would start with that. And if it's still of interest, hey, fill out the contact form and we'll find out if I can work with you. If you're, that is, if you're an owner who operates a, an established business, not a startup uh, but something that has employees and probably a team of managers. That's where my sweet spot is. Tony Mayo, thank you so much for joining me today. It's been a blast. Good to be here. Thanks again to Tony, and thank you for joining us. Until next time, I'm Frank Felker saying I'll see you on the radio. Happily serving as your ladle in the punch bowl of profit. Here's Radio Free Enterprise with Frank Felker.